0: As the time went on, and now they really wanted to screw with the city, they were extorting the city, they wanted to screw with investigators, it became nightly entertainment for these guys, and they were addicted adrenaline junkies by now, you know, so they'd be out there setting these fires, they'd go for a ride, we're going to go for a ride tonight, and no intention of setting a fire, but they couldn't stay away from it. And they end up setting fires.
1: Welcome to the Firehouse Logbook Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Dawson. In November of 1980, the voters of Massachusetts went to the voting booths and overwhelmingly passed Proposition 2 a measure that reduced taxes and limited their increase over the coming years. That proposition would be the impetus for one of the largest arson cases in the history of the United States. The story of the conspiracy, the conspirators, their motivation, the fires, the investigation and the impact of those fires over the course of over three years is chronicled in the book Burn, Boston, Burn, written by now retired ATF agent Wayne Miller, who was intimately involved with that investigation. Just to give you some introductory information on that book, I'm gonna read from uh, the first chapter. Uh, Quote, during one stretch in the summer of 1982, fires burned almost nightly, leading national news outlets to dub Boston the arson capital of the nation. Incredibly, the men involved were police officers and or firefighters as well as security personnel who were sworn to serve and protect the public. Most of them had wanted to become professional firefighters. All of them were actually fire buffs, known informally as sparks. However, these men were a militant faction that split it off from the legitimate hobbyists. Some nights there were more multiple alarm fires in Boston than are now experienced in several months. Property damage was counted in the tens of millions in early 1980 dollars. Although there was no evidence that anyone died from any of these fires, a couple hundred firefighters plus some civilians were injured during the arson spree. The main motivation of the arson ring members for setting so many fires in such a short period of time was an attempt to extort the city of Boston and the Commonwealth of Massachusetts into changing the property tax cutting initiative known as Proposition 2.5. Prop 2.5 cut local tax revenues of over 350 Massachusetts towns and cities by some $450 million. With little hope for federal or state funds to make up the difference, and it forced localities to cut public services and jobs. Some of you may think that these guys were patriots, rightfully exc- excising their civil disobedience, with some of their idealistic actions actually resulting in successful government reversals. Indeed, they initially thought of them th- themselves is a twisted modern day version of Robin Hood and his gang of merry men. Even if enough fires were set, then all of the laid off firefighters would be rehired and the closed fire stations would be reopened. And they imagined that their actions would teach people a valuable lesson, that firefighters and police were essential assets to the community, not pawns to be sacrificed on a political game board. However, their warped plan took on many dimensions beyond the alleged initial motivation so that they ended up becoming mere common criminals. Again, that's just a couple of paragraphs from the opening chapter of this book, Burn, Boston, Burn. And uh, thanks to an old colleague of mine who also works for that three-letter agency now, he's connected me with the author of this book, Wayne Miller. And uh, that author is joining me today via the web uh, to talk a little bit about his book and his experience with this investigation. Wayne Miller, thanks uh, thanks for joining me.
0: Robbie, thank you for what you do, and thanks for having me on.
1: Yeah, and uh, yeah, again, this is a, a interesting book from the standpoint of it's 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 not just about those nine arsonists that wound up getting convicted on the um, for the for the arsons over this period of time, but it's it goes a lot more deeply into a lot of the other things that we'll talk about as we go through this. But uh, let's let's go back to the beginning, so to speak, and uh, talk a little bit about yourself and how did you get involved in criminal justice and uh, how did you come to find yourself in the ATF and with that arson unit in Boston.
0: Sure. real quickly you know i started out in engineering at uconn university of connecticut for a year and i hated it right away <laughs> uh i left after the first year i went to bryant college in rhode island which is now bryant university and back then as well as being a business school they had criminal justice and i loved that from the beginning and i excelled at it and i just had a keen interest you know so one class during a winter session you know one of those uh you have a class every single day for three weeks or so uh i raised my hand raised my hand and raised my hand and the class was being taught by the head of the rhode island division of drug control and he said come up here i want to talk to you after class and uh, he asked if i wanted to do some undercover work for the state so i started as a junior in college not doing anything at the college doing drug cases around uh, Rhode Island. Uh, and I did that my junior and senior year and during the summertime uh, in between. And then they got me a job down in Dennis on Cape Cod. And I was a undercover uh, cop down there for a summer buying drugs down there. And, you know, they had a, uh, a career day at Bryant and ATF was there now. Not many people knew about ATF because it was a standalone uh, organization only from 1972. And here I am. I'm graduating in 1975. So a
1: very very young agency.
0: Yes. So when I heard about them and listened to them, I said that is something I'd like to do. The drug business. I could see that just as a dark hole going down. It's it, it, it's never ending, and neither is the gun work, but it just sounded interesting. So I applied, I, got, I was lucky, I did okay on the test, and uh, got hired in June of 1976. And uh, I loved the job from day one.
1: And then retired in, when did you say, 2002 as well?
0: The end of June of 2001, 25 years so. and a week. The end of the pay period. Yeah. You
1: know. Full career for sure. Well, you, you came on, uh, like you mentioned early in the ATF's history, and uh, in your book, you kind of explained a little bit about the, the federal legislation and some of the laws that were in place at the time and how things changed. And this whole idea of the ATF being involved with localities or regions dealing with arson crimes, was, was that kind of a new thing about that same time as well? as this uh, Boston thing kicked off?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um... You know in the late 70s atf started getting serious about working arson cases and what a ridiculous way we had to work fire cases you had to prove or that the building did explode or could have exploded that means somebody either had to use a device or poured gasoline something like that and that's how we had to prove initially uh, arson cases until 1982 when President Reagan added two words to the federal law. If you damage or destroy a building by means of explosive or fire. Only two words. And ATF had the jurisdiction because we had the explosive laws anyway. And so we had the jurisdiction. And um, I became very interested around 1980 in doing fires. And I did my first fire scene in 1980. And um, I started going to the State Fire Academy and the National Fire Academy and uh that's how it worked out
1: yeah and uh just for the for the listener that you you talk you kind of give a brief kind of you talked about a couple of cases gun cases you had worked with the atf before that and i'm sure the career goes well beyond just arson cases because you were in there for for several years before you got into the fireside. but uh looking back at fire investigations as a whole in the in the investigation community what was the situation like either in boston or in general were there were there widespread arson units uh, were there fire marshals doing the investigation or how was it working back then when uh, when this really started
0: well Robert you might you might recall I, I mean you're not quite as old as I am but um, in the seven in the 70s the major cities like LA Boston New York Chicago and other large cities were having tremendous fire problems and there was a lot of urban renewal going on and initially yes Boston, They called it an arson squad back then. It wasn't a fire investigation unit. They changed it eventually. But it was a lot of old retirees, you know, almost guys ready to retire, guys who were injured who couldn't work on on a truck anymore type of thing. So, and the fire marshal's office only had a handful. They didn't have the big teams they have now. I mean, there's four or five teams in Massachusetts now. But back then, they only had maybe 10 guys for the entire state and it was hit or miss and anything that was complicated uh they really couldn't do i mean if a boyfriend threw a molotov at the doorway to a girl's apartment they could catch that person in boston and and locally but anything more complicated it was just too much manpower too much time too much money you know they couldn't work it so luckily the federal government saw this problem nationwide and they started with these arson task forces and boston started those in march 1982. i know you're going to ask me anyway but i volunteered i was never in the military you're not supposed to volunteer according to the military code (laughs)
1: So what was that unit like then, this this uh, arson squad? Was it just a uh, group of ATF agents, or were you partner forcing with uh, state and locals as well at that point?
0: Yep. Uh, we constantly tried to work with the state fire marshals, but we did have a Boston lieutenant from the fire investigation unit sitting at one of our desks, he had, and he had a government car, and he was cross-designated as a marshal so he could be privy he could carry a gun and be privy to a grand jury and stuff like that. So we work side by side with Boston every day.
1: Well, this unit seems to be spooling up just about the time these the these arsonists are getting kicked off. Where where the fires starting to happen and this move this along faster, or were the arsonists even on the radar at this point, and the unit just happened to be in the right place at the right time.
0: You know. We in law enforcement, we don't believe in coincidences, but it really was a coincidence. They set their first fire February 19th, 1982, first structure fire, Um, so mid-February. And the arson Task Force in Boston started the first week of March. Now, that was pure coincidence. They did not know about ATF doing this, and we did not know about these guys yet.
1: Well, let's go back to the to the to the start of this and i mentioned in kind of reading that introduction there was this proposition two and a half wound up cutting a lot of um tax revenues to the cities around massachusetts and it seems like boston took the big hit of it they closed uh, a number of fire stations laid off a couple of hundred firefighters i think up to 13 percent of the workforce at the time within about 10 months of these tax impacts being seen um you, one, of the, one of the fires you talk about in the book is the, the kind of the principal of the group kind of was one of the sparks, one of the hobbyists that were chasing fire trucks and saw really the impact of a fire in a residential structure. A couple of people died. He wound up actually having to help with CPR with one of the victims, and that kind of started hatching the idea of we need to demonstrate the, the benefits of the fire department and get the city to hire these guys back, open these stations back up. To talk talk a little bit more about that guy or these people that really were the nexus or the nucleus of the group that started the whole process
0: sure i'm the one that came up with the term of calling them a twisted version of robin hood um instead of stealing from the rich and give it to the poor with proposition two and a half if you had a hundred thousand dollar piece of property the tax is now limited to two and a half percent of that so two thousand five hundred dollars and the old cities like Boston and so many others here in Massachusetts, the property values are pretty low. So they had to lay off so many firefighters. Um, 600 lost their jobs out of 1,700 here in Boston. And they closed 22 fire companies. So these guys said, we have to do something about it. And, you know, they initially tried to break car windows and stuff like that to get the police running around with so they couldn't go to uh, major crimes and they didn't get any place with that. So they said, what are we going to do to get people's attention? And the only way they're going to get rehired is by setting building fires. So they had this conspiracy initially of four guys that grew to uh, Greg's best friend, Lenny Kendall, a fifth guy and Wayne Sandin, the sixth guy, and eventually to nine people. But, um, They started setting fires using a simple incendiary device in in and around Boston, the unoccupied houses first. So that way firefighters most likely would not get hurt because they wouldn't have to go inside. They could fight it from outside. And they figured if we set enough fire, the people are gonna scream, the press is gonna pick it up and the mayor is gonna have to do something like reopen these firehouses and rehire these guys.
1: So let's go back and look at just these individuals. Um, you mentioned Bemis. He was, I think, one of the boss, the sparks that chased down fires, but he was also a police dispatcher. Um, you know, Ray Norton was actually a Boston firefighter who was involved. Um, and he, he was on the job during all these arsons, if I'm not mistaken. He was. Um, robert grabowski or grobo as he's referred to in the book he was actually a boston city police officer as well as um you know, donald stackpole he was a, 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 a security officer known as security company doing security so these guys were kind of in in the business so to speak and kind of working from the inside um when they when they started that they they had that almost code of ethics they didn't want to hurt anybody so they were aiming at Um, unoccupied buildings but they did hurt a bunch of firefighters in the course of this and a couple of couple of the big fires that happened uh, injured 20 and 30 people 20 30 firefighters when they happened what would did did that never did that ever kind of deter them or think make them think twice about what they were working towards
0: can you imagine these guys who are public servants you know they think that they're doing the right thing by setting these fires so people get hired And October 2nd, 1982, when 22 firefighters come crashing down with the building, breaking backs and legs and getting burns, they have a meeting the next day amongst themselves at Ray Norton's house, the Boston firefighters' house. Oh, we didn't plan to hurt anybody like this. We gotta be more careful. We have to imagine we have to be more careful. We're gonna continue on with our, our acts, our domestic terrorism, that they were doing and they only waited like two more days before they did another commercial structure
1: but but they didn't change their tactics at all it was the it was just we need to be more careful
0: that that is it
1: empty talk did, didn't one of them make the comment something to the fact that well they shouldn't have been on the roof anyway was that the... oh
0: donald stackpole was the biggest ass of the group and ray norton was right behind him um and you know norton Heard that, and he was upset still that uh, somebody would say that about fellow firefighters. But uh, Donald Stackpole, the security company owner, said, "You know, screw them. They shouldn't have been on the roof anyway."
1: So he, he had a bit of a grudge to grind too. He wanted to, was he one of the ones that wanted to be a firefighter and couldn't couldn't get on the job for whatever reason? Maybe it was performance on the test, or maybe it was these layoffs and cuts. But he he held a grudge for that, didn't he?
0: He definitely did you know i describe him as a four by four lump because you know he was short and heavy and you know an idiot on on, on the side uh, he did have a uh, felony record for stealing something once also and uh he could never pass a physical just because he's been out of shape since he was in high school and um not only did he have a grudge against uh, police and firefighters He He said constantly. Oh, they're just a bunch of drunks the, the firefighters and they're just sleeping in the firehouse all day long uh, That type of stuff. He made nasty comments over and over um, And you know, he's one of the guys who eventually went to trial because He was just that type of nasty person who wouldn't give up
1: How did the how did the task force come to? play in here you know um, this is kind of that busy spring that um, the, a couple of cases came came to fruition that really brought the ATF in is that the point at where the, the arson task group kind of came together and started to work together on these cases or when did that really start the process as a team?
0: right so again when we had the task force we had Lieutenant Steve McLaughlin right in our group and we worked with Boston every day. And when the fires started escalating throughout the spring into the summer of 82 we would talk to boston every day and we would work some of these fires with them but then june 3rd had Toy company which a building that affected interstate commerce and it was such a large fire a nine alarm fire that brought in the uh, national response team and then they did a lot more commercial buildings afterwards too so at that point we're playing with, working with Boston Fire and police every single day trying to figure out who could be doing this. And Boston Fire was doing almost all the origin cards, uh, except for some of the commercial buildings we worked with them side by side. And uh, we were just out there constantly and started doing surveillances in the city, um, trying to figure out who's doing this. Now, you got to figure, there's 600 firefighters who lost their jobs. It could be any one of them, or or could it be the union? Yeah, we hated to to approach that subject, you know, but uh, you had to. Um, You just had to try to figure out what's going on, and that's just one possibility.
1: So, you know, Bemis was a a police dispatcher in the area. Um, Grabowski was a police officer for the city of Boston. Norton was a a firefighter on duty because these guys were so connected to the business. Did they ever get uh, an idea that you all were on to them or that you all were uh, out on a certain day? Or did they get any kind of intel on the from the bad guys perspective as to where you were going to be so they could hit the next neighborhood over? Or were they just kind of operating in a vacuum and just kind of watching?
0: Well, they I think they knew that we did not know they were the arsonists, or we didn't even suspect them it was well into the fall before that happened but they did have the ray norton worked right in fire headquarters and again ray would know that the arson squad is uh out tonight in force and there's a bunch of guys there's a bunch of cars out here they're, they're going to be out there doing surveillances uh Grublewski being a police officer would be could be you know, intimate with information of us being out there also. And they knew the city at the back of their hand. And Greg Bemis, even so, he came from outside of Boston. He knew the city extremely well. And they knew what kind of vehicles were driving. Um, if one of us is driving down the road, they could spot us right
1: away. Because they knew your car. Yes. Speaking of cars, um, all of these guys drove cars. Uh, I guess former police cars or cars that were decked out to look like uh, police vehicles. Um, were they doing that before this arson spree or was it a, a conscious effort that they employed to avoid detection and to try to look like the, they were part of the law enforcement community versus an arsonist?
0: You know, I don't know why they started driving their black LTDs and Chevy sedans. Um, they just always wanted to look like they're in unmarked vehicles so they could get away with whatever they were doing like they'd race down the streets just normally, that type of thing. But it became very powerful for them to do that in these neighborhoods uh, in the middle of the night around Boston to drive their unmarked cruisers, so to speak, um, around. And they knew it was to their advantage because nobody would be driving around and getting out of their vehicles in some of these neighborhoods in the middle of the night.
1: And they actually—I uh, think the book goes to talk about a couple of cases where some on-duty law enforcement officers saw them, drove past them, you know, kind of gave them the head nod or whatever, and thought they were on-duty investigators, or that maybe they thought they were part of the arson squad doing surveillance in the neighborhood. So it actually gave them cover, at least in a couple of scenarios that you talk about in the book.
0: Exactly, and you know, Ray Norton had a real license plate with the word arson on it, so. I, there was one case where a Boston police officer saw him drive by and just figured he's from the Arson Squad.
1: <laughs> it's, it's a decal for the Arson Squad. They're advertising. Yeah. Well and you mentioned uh, two hundred and sixty odd fires over the course of three years. Uh, did you ever have any um, copycats? Did you have somebody who was trying to burn something that became, you know, oh, that, that you that you knew that wasn't these the 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 arson ring or the, the serial arsonist because it was a different mo did you ever have any copycats that popped up on your radar
0: not a group of anything you know not anything organized uh, nothing like organized crime nothing like gangs um again there might have been a couple of us and for profits that would look totally different uh they figured hey what a time to set my building on fire right sell it to the insurance company but we did have this lone individual had nothing to do with these guys, and he could care less that so they were out setting fires. Uh, Michael McDonald just had a problem. He had his own issues. Um, he gets paid on Thursday. He go to the little pub in Jamaica Plain and get drunk and walk home and just pick up the trash because it was trash night and stuff it under the shingles or stuff it under a porch and set it on fire and uh, the very first night surveillance and we got michael mcdonald in the act you know and again the bosses thought we had solved the whole problem the whole fire problem in boston by picking up that guy and the street guys just said no 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 <laughs> this isn't him
1: it's, it's different it's different for sure well uh, over the course of um you know Three years and 260 odd fires. Um, you mentioned that uh, the the 608 firefighters and maybe the union. You you hate to think about it, but that's a possibility. How many total suspects do you think you really had that were you you guys were looking at as an arson unit that that you actually wound up doing some more investigative work on? How many total people did you look at for suspects? Sure.
0: At any one time throughout the summer of '82, in particular. We had a list of 16 to 18 people, and we would work on a couple of them and eliminate two. And, but the next day you add two more people. Um, you know, there was an investigator in Cambridge, Mass., right across the Charles River from downtown, Boston. And he suspected and told us that it could be bought up companies. You know, the, there's a couple companies that don't always respond. Or it could be a couple other Sparks who are out there. Um, even their, the name of a couple of these guys came up because they were not liked. Uh, in particular, Norton being the firefighter, just because he had a big mouth. And he was very caustic and stackpole They were unusual, nasty people that fire investigators and other people on the street said it could be these guys. We had nothing serious to point
1: to did you ever wind up going back and interviewing those those two guys uh, before the kind of the break in the case did did you ever anybody ever do interviews with them and getting doing nope. kind of background
0: not at all because you know um you know cops and stuff get those gut feelings sometimes, and that's what the fire investigator he was a firefighter in Cambridge who was a fire investigator, but because he didn't like him that's why he was on their list, list. Oh, okay.
1: So you, you could see through the – he didn't have any any up reason other than he's a jackass. I'm going to get him right. jammed and, up.
0: You know, you can't count these guys being at 200 fires even because we had all the sparks in Boston running from fire to fire. These fire buffs, a lot of them were out in the street, and Boston was burning so much that they would just run from fire to fire.
1: Ultimately – and these guys would, would go to these fires and – it, it's the I guess the verb spark the fire, which is the the come and be the fire buff, take pictures, you know, talk to the guys on the scene and whatnot. And they would actually come to some of their fires that they had actually lit. Uh, oh you, yeah, oh,
0: the the methodology was light the fire, go drive around for a while till it gets called in, and then show up if it's progressing beyond uh, into a multiple long fire. Right. You know, they would show up all the
1: time. And they would, I mean, I. In the book, the way you talk about it and the way you describe it is if it didn't trigger a multiple alarm fire, it was a failure to them because they wanted that that big message to be sent that they needed more firefighters in the system.
0: They needed that big fire, absolutely. you know, uh, And that's why they went out and started doing more and more and more sometimes. And they wanted um, the press that June 11th night um they wanted the press to pick up and they did I mean by the summertime somebody in the press came up with Friday Night Firebug and Mr. Flair I I asked Greg Bemis um Greg Bemis and I have this relationship still today um it's a weird professional friendship and um you know Greg loved the name Mr. Flair sometimes I blame the press you know, every bank robber gets a name when there's a series of robberies, or every uh, organized crime guy has a nickname. And every time they put it in the paper, it's always Frankie the the Rifleman, you know, that type of thing. Uh, and Greg loved it, and these guys loved the press picking up on these guys. And during that summertime, it was in the news regularly that there were three fires last night and five fires the next night.
1: And they they pretty much stuck to Thursday night, Friday mornings is kind of their MO for a while. Uh, and ultimately they wound up changing their geographic pattern. They went further out of Boston. What what made them go to the other neighborhoods or the other communities? What got them out outside of downtown Boston?
0: Yeah, they, they knew what the city got had gotten a little hotter with ATF and Boston uh, police and fire now on the streets and doing surveillances. And they definitely wanted to screw with the investigators. They changed to a Tuesday night, and they went up to Lowell, Massachusetts, about 30 miles north of Boston, and they set four multiple alarm fires there, and Lawrence, another city north, and they went 40 miles northwest to Pittsburgh, and I think it was October of 82, and they set four multiple alarm fires in Pittsburgh, huge fires in Pittsburgh, and I won't tell your listeners, but something happened that night somebody almost dies and it's not because of a fire I, I, I tell people it's a very dramatic scene and it, it's gonna make good movie someday
1: Wow, I'm digging <laughs> into that more one of these days uh, I, I have an agent by the way a
0: media agent and uh, we are trying trying to get this to some sort of film
1: oh that'd be cool to watch too um... So it, it, at this point, it seems like, you know, they're not, they're, they're setting them multipliers on single nights to tax the system. Um, now they're spreading out geographically. Uh, are they, is it still for the same purpose of driving home the fact that they need to open those stations and hire those firefighters back in Boston, or is there some other kind of motivation happening that's not part of that?
0: Right. Well, proposition two and a half affected every city and town. So there's going to, be some layoffs in every place that they went and set fires but as the time went on and now they really wanted to screw with the city they were extorting the city they wanted to screw with investigators it became nightly entertainment for these guys and they were addicted adrenaline junkies by now you know so they'd be out there setting these fires They'd go for a ride. We're going to go for a ride tonight. And no intention of setting a fire, but they couldn't stay away from it. They end up setting fires.
1: So it now becomes more the excitement uh, of the event versus the mission of the act, so to speak.
0: Right. Right.
1: You mentioned that um, they, they were kind of taunting investigators, and there's one uh, story in the book you talk about. They were the, all the sparks were in a parking lot, and uh, I think one of the ATF agents or one of the investigators or the the people who were doing surveillance rode past their location two or three times. And it was, um, uh, I think, Norton that actually lit a piece of paper on fire and was waving it at him. Uh, what was the deal with that?
0: Uh, I mentioned how nasty Norton was and how nobody liked him and he would just do stuff like that because what are they going to do? Are they going to arrest him for that? No. Um, he figures, ah, I'll just bust their balls. I'm going to bust their balls. But you know, you mentioned that they taunted us. They, they would go to Canton, Massachusetts, Fitchburg, any place outside the city. They wanted the credit for setting these fires. They would call on the business line Thinking that the business line is not a recorded line. And they would say, Hey, the Boston arsonist in town, you ready for him? That type of thing. Yeah, pull Just your boots
1: ready. up, I think was the quote I heard in the yes, pull, your pull your boots up, we're in town. That's right it was did as the investigation was going on did you did you think this was a lone actor or did you think it was a group of people because ultimately nine nine folks were indicted in this case uh, that's a pretty big crowd of people to keep a secret for a couple of years and and nothing really get out um what was the thought process of the investigators where you're looking at one, this could be one this could be two this can't be more than three what was the thought going on then
0: you're right on the money i mean we did not think it was one, but we figured it was a small group. Even if it was union involved, we still didn't think it would be more than four people. You know, um, It wouldn't have the blessing of so many people. And again, how do you keep something secret like that for so long? I don't think that could happen today with the way social media is. I, I think somebody would just have to slip somewhere.
1: Well, I was going to be kind of my end of the wrap questions. is This was 82, so no cell phone, certainly no social media. How, how would the uh, investigation be impacted today with those tools? But say, We'll hold off on that one. But, uh, the, you know, they, they kind of graduated from, they were started with dumpsters. That's not getting the job done. They went to abandoned or vacant houses and residential properties. That's not getting it done. They went to a, a, the toy factory and then the marine barracks obviously hurting a, a, a 50, more than 50 firefighters. They they also sit fire to a fire academy. What, you know, what was up with that?
0: Really, it's, it's one of the most unusual portions of this story. Um, you know, Donald Stackpole, the security company owner, suggested to Greg Bemis one day, let's burn it. Well, they couldn't do it that night. And Greg went out on his own and set it on fire one night. He couldn't wait for anybody else to come out to his area. You know, it's about 30 miles northwest of Boston where the academy was located. It was an old dumpy place, an old wooden structure from uh, built in the 50s. That was the fire academy. It was inherited from some other agency. And uh, Greg said, I've been there before. I know it's rickety. He still takes credit for burning the Fire Academy down and giving us a nice new facility. We have a great facility out there now.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's, I read that too. That's He's prideful about that. You're welcome, is what he th- he's probably thinking. I got you a new building. Well, they actually stole some equipment out of that too, didn't they? A couple of air packs or something like that? To... Yeah,
0: the Scott, Scott Air Packs, uh, about half a dozen of them. Oh, um, and just, they never could really uh, use them. They, they played with them one day. Uh, later on in this case, but they never really used them. But uh, we recovered them eventually. So it's another nice piece of physical evidence, along with these uh, fireboxes that we, uh, you know, these guys, Greg knew the firebox system in Boston. These are, these are those uh, call boxes and pull boxes that are up on pedestals and uh, utility poles, sides of building. And uh, they were everywhere back in those days. And you could actually speak to Boston Fire Alarm by opening some of these. They had a phone receiver in there, and you would talk to the fire alarm and tell them where the fire was located. Well, by accident, they got one in their hands one night when they were calling in this uh, a car fire in the middle of the road that they didn't set. And it wasn't working. So Bobby Gabalewski got upset by that and yanked on it and pulled it right off the pole. And they cut the wires, threw it in the car, and that was the first one that they stole. And they decided, now Boston usually misses one a year, firebox, maybe two. That year there were 14 missing because they realized, hey, if this box is missing here and that fire company around the corner is closed, If we set a fire in this neighborhood nobody can report it in the middle of the night from driving by and then the fire company has to come from a half mile away so the fire is now growing to that multiple on fire that they
1: want yeah so it was a delay tactic getting the getting the delay in the response units yes uh, so ultimately, um, you know, how did what and you mentioned that firebox and in, uh, I th- in your book, you're talking about the first interview of one of the suspects and you actually see a firebox in his in his room or in his living room. And you wound up finding out which, where it came from and, you know, hey, well, maybe we've got something here and kind of started putting pieces together. But what, what was kind of the trigger point that that got these nine, are at least the first few people on the list as targets and, and suspects that kind of started to develop from there. How did that come about?
0: Uh, November 21, 1982, uh, Garrity Lumberyard. Garrity Two, we called it, because in a, mid-October, they set a portion of Garrity Lumber on fire then, too. So my very good friend, Matt Whittemore, was a WBZ TV cameraman here in Boston. Uh, Nat's been my biggest supporter of this whole book since I started writing it. Um, I still talk to him. We still go out and he still backs me up and he comes out to uh, live events, and he interjects and puts his spin on it. But, uh, Nat Whittemore hooked up with the Cambridge fire investigator, Eddie Fowler. Um, Eddie would see an arsonist behind every single fire, um, You know, he's the type of guy that you need, but you roll your eyes at once in a while with some of the stories and some of the theories that he has. But uh, Eddie was also a cameraman for a professional uh, cameraman. So they went to the Gerrity Lumberyard fire. Uh, Nat's getting paid every night to go to these fires. And he's also a member of the Boston Sparks Association. So he loved what he was doing. He's getting paid uh, for his
1: hobby. There you go. uh,
0: Exactly. So, this one night, they split up when they got there. And Nat hears guys hooting and hollering. Very unusual. These guys, a lot of people didn't like them because they would root for the home team. Who's the home team, Robbie? The,
1: The fire would be the home team in their case, yeah.
0: Exactly. They would root for the home team. And Nat came around the corner. And... Boston cop, Grablewski was there. He only knew a couple of these guys by sight and maybe a couple of them name, uh, But Grablewski was not in uniform. Nat swung his camera around towards these guys, and Grablewski pulled his sidearm out from a shoulder holster and waved it in the air for about two to three seconds total, like he was on a bucking Bronco. He was sitting on a lumber pile, And he waves it around and his, his buddies there, he had uh, Joe Gorman. We haven't mentioned him. Joe wanted to be a state trooper, but he was also a fire buff since he was a teenager. And um, Donald Stackpole was right next to him and Greg Bemis was there. And they said, he's filming you. And very sheepishly, he puts it back in his holster and they're all grinning and laughing and looking over, we have this on film. I use this for uh, part of my program. And they look over to the right because Ray Norton's over on the right-hand side. He never got caught on film that night, but the Boston firefighter is right there, too. Because of that, we ended up, not, my partner and I ended up knocking on Gabluski's door a couple days later. And we interviewed him, and he lied right to our face. I'm a fire buff. I always wanted to be a firefighter. Um, I don't know anything about the fires being set, but in his living room, my good friend, Billy Murphy, puts on his trench coat that he wore all the time, and as we were getting ready to leave, and he's looking, he said, oh, that firebox, my grandfather made lamps out of those things or something, and Billy just wanted a closer look because every one of them has numbers, and the number was 1712 on that one, and... We raced back into Boston and looked at the list underneath Billy's blotter on his desk and the mimeograph list. (laughs) And uh, Box 1712 was the first one missing that year, March of 1982. And we got a local warrant and seized it a couple days later, a day later. And there's a whole story behind that, too, because Boston did not want us doing that uh were going after one of their own they weren't happy yep. and we seized it and he got uh he was going to be charged with receiving stolen property i don't think he ever did get charged um but he was taken off the street and put in um dispatch
1: so how did you you know you, you, you mentioned the the video could you identify anybody else other than other than the officer and that and did you wind up talking to them as well or was because he He clearly kind of had the brandishing of the firearm, kind of had the biggest target on his back. Did you go after him first?
0: Yeah, you know, we usually approach, you know, law enforcement to law enforcement, do you know anything, that type of thing. And he came in with a lawyer and took a polygraph and failed it dramatically. I don't know what game he was trying to play with us, but he failed. And his lawyer said he can't talk. And I didn't get a chance to talk to him again. Boston had their internal affairs do an investigation. I didn't talk to Bobby from December of 1982 until January, 1984, 13 months. So what we did in the meantime was start knocking on the doors. We knew that Wayne Sandin, another Boston um, housing authority police officer. We knocked on his door, one of the first and Wayne. I talked to Wayne, Wayne to Wayne. We both had two young kids, law enforcement, the law enforcement. You, you know, is there anything you can help us with? He said, no, I don't know. You know, these guys burned a, uh, a strip car, a stolen car in South Boston one day. Yeah, that's no big deal, you know. Then uh, he told me eventually they burned a car that caught onto a building. Oh, that's a little better. But we even wired them up one day. It didn't work too well. But Wayne Sandler would give me tidbits of information, and that's where we got the second break.
1: What was that? What what, what did that lead you to?
0: Now, imagine. So we're now into 83. And in August of 1983, he told me about these idiots stole a brand-new, unmarked cruiser from a Ford dealership.
1: (laughs) Idiots. Yeah,
0: I got you. (laughs) To upgrade their own parts on their own personal vehicle to make it look more
1: like a modern day police car.
0: Right. Exactly. And then they dumped it into what is known as the Fort point channel. It separates like downtown Boston from South Boston. It's part of the ocean. Basically they dumped it in there in the water. And Wayne Sandin told me about it. He told me where they dumped it. So we got the Boston dive teams the police and uh, fire and we recovered the vehicle and we're still going to fires and i'm still getting trying to get wayne Sandin. he said that the Stackpole might burn security car companies uh some of the cars because they have high miles we'll sell them to the insurance company instead you know so i was hoping for that and it didn't happen so we're still floundering for a bit into the fall of 83.
1: Uh, so this is um grabowski, grabowski he clearly knows you guys are looking at him at least tangentially you know he got he's got eyes on him he's obviously telling his co-conspirators hey please came talk to me and they just kept going they they didn't and even even sand didn't he he probably told him that they that he was talking to you guys and they just it was oh well we're going to keep going did they feel invincible at that point or was it were they just getting that much more brazen
0: uh, they slowed down a little bit in eighty three for sure because of us, but they did not stop and and sandon he's given me this information talking to me puts a wire on for us, and he is setting fires himself with these guys at that point i mean he he probably set ten to twenty fires in eighty three while he's given information to me and um they had brazen was the word to use and big balls and uh Taking a heck of a chance, um, you know, they still figure that we're not as close as we could have been.
1: So they, they still think that, they're, that they're, you don't have anything on them. You don't have any any solid evidence, even though what you may have may be a little bit shaky at the moment. It's uh, this police car in the river kind of gives you a little bit next break. Uh, what was kind of the linchpin that really got the indictments flowing? and. Uh, yep. Really got people talking. Then,
0: that... Yeah, now we know we're really onto the right crew at least, you know. But, again, try to do surveillance of these guys. They're all law enforcement savvy. Uh, they know the streets. They're driving around in the middle of the night, and then they drive to a city or town that's 10 or 20 miles away. Uh, you know, we didn't have the equipment that would work really well. Uh, we had what we call a bird dog you could put on a car if you could get a warrant for it, you know, that type of thing. But we weren't following them. We just had not enough to really follow them and manpower and everything else. So we got a new supervisor, Phil Tortorella, after Jack Dowd was the initial supervisor for the first uh, almost two years of that fire spree. And Phil took over in December of 83. And Phil was a no-nonsense type of guy who really lived by the book. And he reviewed the case, and he said, Wayne, you have to focus. You can't run around to fires anymore. You've got the right people. Go pick on Bobby again. And you know, I call him Bobby again because I spent two to four hundred hours with him at one point in time. So it slips once in a while I call him by his Man. first name. You know? So we finally set him down on the night of january twelfth. We organized a interview with him with the deputy superintendent Jack Gifford and two detectives over at Boston PD headquarters. And we had one of my older senior agents, Jimmy Carolides, working with me at that point. And Jimmy was to take the lead on the interviews. Jimmy's a, a character. He was, he's passed away now, but uh, yet I can visualize the entire scene. And it's a, another dramatic scene. He had a three piece suit on and Jimmy's a, was a card-carrying actor he was a thespian he, he did plays in a, a real playhouse you know and so he
1: used those skills to his best advantage even in the interrogation room huh?
0: oh my god did he <laughs> you know we're sitting down bobby we put bobby at the far end of the room furthest away from the door but he was free to go right but you know you use little tactics and put him at the far end and jimmy's much walking back and forth pacing back and forth and and berating Bobby as you know, you're a law enforcement guy, serve and protect, you took an oath, you know, and eventually he comes up with a key line. I don't, do you really want me to give it to you here?
1: <laughs> it's in the book. I, let's leave that as a teaser, but it's, it, I, 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 I don't, I would be afraid to quote it, but it, it is dramatic the way you spell it out in the book. And that scenario is, that's one that's going to make the movie. It's got to be exactly that way. So Exactly. Uh, you know, I can I can picture the scenario of him, him him delivering that line, and then Bobby's head just going, "You got me." Like, yeah. I'm, uh, that you, you you mentioned how his body language changed, and you knew then, here we go, we we we, we yep. broke through that wall.
0: In the next hour, my head was spinning, my stomach was spinning. Uh, he gave up about twenty nine fires in the next hour, right off right off his head, you know, the cuff. And uh, we took him away from. Uh, Boston police headquarters to the ATF office instead, you know, knowing what they felt about the warrant for the firebox. And they weren't happy with us. I mean, I, the deputy superintendent was a good, great guy, and the two detectives who were working with us were great guys. And they were wanted to get that son of a bitch, you know. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so in the middle of the night, when we got, we called the U.S. Attorney. And this part I'll give up, he, the second assistant came out in the middle of the night. A very well-known name today to all your listeners. Robert Mueller. Bob Mueller. Bob Mueller from the uh, investigation of uh, Donald Trump and the FBI. He was the head of the FBI for a while and the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office. <laughs> really
1: Interesting connection, yeah.
0: So, um, Robert Mueller came out in the middle of the night and said we have to place him under arrest. So, about about 324 a.m yeah I had the luxury of placing bluewski under arrest uh, now Friday the 13th 13th of January 1984 very unlucky day for Bobby very very lucky day for the citizens of Boston and the surrounding community <laughs> you
1: know so that was kind of the 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 dam breaking loose and uh, from that point forward were there any did, did uh, Bemis and Stackpole and the rest of the crew, did they know he had been arrested at that point? Or did they did they go, oh, we just can't find him. He's, we're going to go ahead and set a few more fires while we're at it. Were they still at work?
0: They were confused. Uh, Bobby kept it a secret. Uh, I mean, it was all over the press the next day, all over the place. And Bobby said, oh, the government just lied. And they just got the press to put this in the paper. And stuff like that and he lied to him and eventually he he lied to them as well as he lied to us and even better because we couldn't talk to him again had, had an attorney again the next day in federal court and for five months we couldn't speak to him again until he finally gave it up and came back came on our side um, he was trying to suppress his confession we tape recorded his confession and I recommend people audio, you know, yeah. tape it visually, too, nowadays. But we didn't do that, but we did record it. And Bobby was so relaxed, had gotten it off his chest. And uh, when he finally came over to our side in May of 84, we wired him 17 times. Now, we had tried to speak to somebody. I talked to Norton a couple times. Tried to speak to a couple of these guys, and some of them just told me to go shit in my hat, you know, type of thing. Um, so uh, Norton was really a wacko. You know, he called me back after he, he verbally abused me when I was talking to him and apologized and stuff like that. But uh, we got nowhere with those guys until Bobby finally wore wire 17 times, some phone calls and some live in-person meetings and the recordings were fabulous we got everybody but Stackpole and Norton actually confessing to so much on these recordings that they couldn't do anything but um confess and plead guilty
1: and that ultimately that's wound up you you mentioned that uh, was a, almost all of them pled guilty in some or or did a plea agreement i think uh was it greg that wound up you know, turning more evidence on the guys or, or how did the, you know, who was the next player that kind of rolled over for you and gave you the rest of the story?
0: So we made the arrest of all these guys. Uh, We had grand jury too. Ray Norton went to grand jury and lied and um, Joe Gorman, who was only a bit player, but he was present for several of the fires and uh, Joe Gorman was going into the grand jury and he decided to tell the truth uh, outside the grand jury. And that was just before his arrest. And then, when they got arrested, all these guys, uh, for some reason, they put Donald Stackpole, Wayne Sanden, and Greg Bemis in the same cell in a hundred and fifty-year-old jail here in Mass- Massachusetts, and they were in the same cell for two weeks. When uh, Stackpole started talking about uh, let's let's kill Gublouski and a couple other people, and he had the, they had the means to do it, um, so um, Greg had had enough. And on a weekend, he called his attorney to call the US attorney and we had a, an assistant head out there on a weekend. And to a 30 year agreement, he decided to cooperate.
1: Yeah, apparently a uh, murder conspiracy was off the table for him. And that's, this thing went down a couple of different paths, uh, an obstruction of justice charge for somebody in Ohio that was trying to hide one of the witnesses. and you know, this, this uh, discussion of a murder uh, kind of uh, alluded to a couple things. So this thing takes a couple of different neat, interesting turns, and that's what well, I'm sure is going to make it a pretty interesting movie when it
0: comes Right, to- the, the ninth conspirator um, lived across the street once upon a time from Donald Stackpole and went to high school with him and was a fire buff back in the day. But he had moved to Ohio and had a legitimate job and wasn't, sparking fires or anything. And Stackpole called him up and said, hey, could you do do me a favor? I'm afraid Grovo might talk. So can you help house him out there and get him a job out in Ohio with you? And he said, yes. And because he said yes, and we got him on tape, we got a phone call from Gablewski to him. And he's saying, yeah, I'll take care of you out here and stuff like that. Because of that, he became part of the conspiracy and He went to
1: prison too. Well, it's we've been at it over an hour. Let me. I'm going to try to kind of wrap us up and land this plane. Um, this book was, was like I said, fantastic. It was a it was one that kept me up to a whale after midnight a couple of nights digging into it because I'm always kind of wondering well, where is this going and how is this going to turn out. Um, the the dialogue in this thing, and you mentioned it in, in the early chapter. It's it's you capture a lot of dialogue between the conspirators as this was happening, and, and a lot of real granular detail which makes this story so rich how did how were you able to capture all of that information
0: right when greg decided to come over to our side i did interview him for between two to four hundred hours uh we went to every fire scene and we tape recorded who did what at this scene no matter what the scene looked like whether it was a burned out hulk a repaired building or a vacant lot and so i spent a lot of time with him and yeah, you eat lunch with him and everything else, and you, you get this relationship going. And you, you understand his mannerisms and how he talks, and everything we put on tape, he told us the story. But then when he went to prison, he wrote a typed, single spaced, 163 page uh, journal. And that's where all the dialogue comes from. Um, I have his journal and yes, it's a recounting of what he put in his journal. There's no doubt about it. And you know, the people who have criticized the book in a sense, most of them lay people. I kept a lot of fires in here, Robbie, because even so I reduced them down to a sentence because I wanted the people to see the repetition that these guys were out there and these guys were doing this day after day. And we were floundering day after day, running around chickens with our head cut off and not knowing where to go, just running from fire to fire. I wanted people to see that. And that's the, the only part that people have talked about. It's like Groundhog Day. you know, It yeah. happens over and over. But uh, so that's how the dialogue got. It. it sounds like fiction a lot of times because of the dialogue, but it's real life.
1: Yeah, and you put that right up front in the book you, that, that that's where you draw a lot of this this information from, and I think that kind of gives, and you're right, it's his recollection of it, but it, it really puts that first-person narrative on there of this is what he said was going on just you know a couple of years ago right after the fact, and, and then you bring it forward into the book, and I, I think it tells a great story of all of how the, the individuals interacted because there's great stories between how all these conspirators either worked together had conflicts uh you know relationship with women along the way that kind of came in and out of the picture and uh the stories of how um you know the the history of the atf and how the atf process got evolved because this is early on in the atf's history like i said and uh, i think it's just a great story that kind of weaves everything together um anything else about this case you want to share or anything that i missed that you want to make sure people uh understand uh other than short sure of getting the book this it's not a not a it's not a, a day read by any stretch but it's a good beach read for sure uh it's uh something that that takes a little time to get into but you know what what can what what do you want people to know about the book or the stories that are in it
0: well you know eight of the nine guys did go to prison um stackpole is now permanently housed in the brain tree massachusetts cemetery he died two years after he got out he got the longest sentence he got a 40-year sentence but under the old federal system, you were eligible after 10, but he got out after 23, okay? Okay. But, um, you know, fires are dramatically different in Massachusetts. uh, We don't have the the arson fires like this at all now. Um, You know, generally Boston itself has only a couple of multiple on fires uh, a month, it seems, you know? you know, I did 18 years private after I left ATF, so I'm still very, I was still very much involved with the FIRE community. Um, what's so great about doing uh, something like this is meeting a lot of the people. I get emails from complete strangers, and they tell me stories how, oh, that picture that you showed at a seminar, that's my father on top of the ladder, you know, and he <laughs> passed away three years ago or something, you know. Or, you know, just, you, you meet so many new people now because of the, I have spoken now live about 42 times on this, uh, COVID put a little dent in that, but some of those have come back over the last year and I've got uh, half a dozen lined up for this year. And um, it could never happen again today like this because the social media, the cell phones, The tracking devices, GPSs in cars, uh, the cameras that are on every single corner and doorbell ring, you know, that type of thing. It couldn't happen this way. Uh, So it's a once in a lifetime story. Uh, I lived it for three years from 82 to 85, and I've lived it again from uh, 2019 until now. So three years on again. And uh, it's a lot different from this side.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was a good book it's a great book and uh, i'll i'll just mention another thing and we'll hopefully get together again one day and talk about the other book you've got out and that's uh bang boom burn obviously the atf doesn't just deal with arson fires they deal with a lot of other stuff and uh, tell me a little bit about that book
0: sure uh very different because um it's 21 short stories instead of that one long story uh a few gun cases, a couple undercover things in the front section. I had a forty-six machine gun case here, and uh, a seizure that we had here in Massachusetts. It was my case, and uh, very interesting case that was. Uh, Ninety-two guns were stolen from an armory four years before, and half of them were in Northern Ireland, and the other half were in this little suburb south of Boston. Four years later, so uh, very interesting. Um, I felt like I was going to be buried one one evening in uh, Maine while I was doing an undercover case with no back, nobody covering me whatsoever. Scary um, times. A couple bombing cases in the middle. A Boston police officer was killed in 1991 uh, with a bomb. And um, I had a couple of small parts in that case. And then a real interesting bombing in western New York. A guy in his 50s dating a uh, 30-something-year-old woman, and her family hated him. So he decided to send six Christmas packages to her family during Christmas week. And uh, five people Surprise died. Surprise packages. Yes. <laughs> and then wow. there's no, yeah. another dozen arson cases after that. And what's interesting, I did a QR code at the beginning and back of the book. It's actually a 20-second story that you can do. A, hover your phone over.
1: Yeah, I, I saw that in there, I was flipping through it. Uh, you sent me a copy of that and appreciate that. Uh, I'm gonna flip through that and dig into it. Here's my next read.
0: The book is meant to um, uh, elicit a lot of emotions. You're gonna be angry, you're gonna be sad, you're gonna laugh because there's a couple of funny, definitely funny things in here. Um, I got the Worcester Six uh, warehouse fire where Worcester Six firefighters died in 1999. Uh, I was at that fire for 10 straight days. And um, if that doesn't pull at your heartstrings, you're cold. You you don't you don't have a heart, you know.
1: Well, uh, how can people get a hold of you? You mentioned you're you're on the speaking circuit. If somebody's out there who's got a, a seminar or conference coming up that they wanted to uh, to get in touch with you to to hopefully get you to come and speak to them, or how do people get a hold of the book? What's the best way to to do those two things?
0: Yeah. Uh, first of all, I love to speak. Um, As you can tell, I still get juiced up by this subject matter, and um, again, I've spoken as far as Reno, Nevada, and the entire East Coast. I was out in Chicago for two events back in September, and as far south as Myrtle Beach so far, and I'm going to Maryland in uh, April. I think I'm going to Maryland in April. I haven't been to Virginia yet, Robbie, so if you know somebody, but- uh, See if I can hook you up. Yep. So my email is, all one word, Wayne Miller at com. And you can Google Burn Boston Burn and you'll see other events I've been to and it'll get you to my website, BurnBostonBurn.com. And uh, it'll get you to my website. You can, if you want a signed copy and one with color pictures, you get it from me. <laughs> I sign okay. them and mail them to you. And I've done that a thousand times at least so far. Or you can go to Amazon or if, uh, I think Walmart and Target may still have them online only. Uh, some Barnes and Nobles you ask, and they'll get it for you, that type of thing. But if you want it signed and in color because the black and white is on Amazon. Amazon has only black and white.
1: Got it. Well, that's, uh, that's gonna be our next read, uh, Wayne Miller. Thanks, anything else to share with the group uh, before we uh, break up?
0: Uh, one just last thing that you mentioned now, um, I'm not in this, you don't make money from selling these books. Amazon gives me like $4 and 66 cents per book out of a book that's 20 or $30, right? So I'm not in this to make money. I have taken about half of what I call profits at this point And giving them to fire victim and charities and i've done it in every state i've spoken to and approximately seven thousand dollars so far and the rest of the money has just gone back into buying more books that i sell to you everybody or to travel and to producing the next book type of thing so um if i come to your location i would love to give to a local charity and again, seven thousand dollars in less than two years. At this point, uh, it's going out. So I enjoy good doing good
1: causes, it. and uh, I'll link up the, those websites uh, in the uh, description of the podcast and on the Facebook page as well. So uh, give a, give folks a couple of different opportunities to uh, to be able to reach out that way. Much appreciated. So that, I'll, I'll just say uh, thanks to everybody for listening. Again, if you have any ideas or suggestions, and uh, basically how I connected with Wayne Miller was through a suggestion from a, from a listener. So, uh, Bill, you know who you are. Uh, just reach out to me at uh, firehouselogbook at gmail.com and give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram, at FD Logbook and FD Logbook Podcast on Twitter. And uh, Wayne Miller, uh, retired ATF agent. Uh, first off, thanks for your service to the to the communities you served and the ATF, and uh, for sharing the stories of uh, the Boston arsonist and in uh, the books to come. So thank you very much, and best of luck with the movie.
0: Thank you for that, and for having me, and for your service, and and for putting these out there like this. It, it really does a service that people can listen to the stories. Appreciate it.